Well, good morning. It's a fun gift to be able to be together again. Uh, this morning I kept thinking about last week as well, just the really amazing gift that it was to be able to celebrate the goodness of Jesus' resurrection together and the deep delight of that. And I just felt so privileged last week to be a part of this community and serving alongside you. So again, thank you to so many of you who uh, served so sacrificially, giving up of an Easter weekend for yourself to be able to bless others and to encourage them. Thank you so much for the amazing and intentional service that you gave. And today I want to talk a bit about how we learn things. And so how do you learn things the best? Again, when we think back to many of the things that we've learned that are deeply ingrained within our lives, it was a combination of two things that really helped us to learn. It was instruction and it was repetition. When we had these two things put together, it ingrained within us new skills, new ideas, new concepts, and new perspective. For example, maybe you learned how to make those famous family cinnamon buns because you watched your grandmother do it. And she taught you how to do it, she explained the whole process to you, and then you went through a journey ongoingly of trying it out and trying it out until you could make these cinnamon buns in your sleep. Or maybe when you were working on your golf swing and you were trying to correct one particular part of it, you had someone give you some particular guidance and direction and instruction, and then you had to practice it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, because you realized that the old habits really die hard and your body was so ingrained with swinging the club a particular way, you had to work really hard at making this change. And our passage today includes some of these various elements. It's a passage that is very similar to other things that Jesus has said before. But Jesus wants to make sure that he guides and directs us and his disciples really well. And so he explains things clearly and in a process of repetition. So some of what we're going to hear today is going to be interestingly similar to some of what Jesus has said before. Again, we're diving back in our series, Remarkable, looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to jump back a couple of passages from where we were before Palm Sunday. So if you go back to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open it up, or a Bible app, or it'll be on the screen as well uh, for you. But Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. Well, those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. This is a really interesting picture to start off this passage. They're headed up towards Jerusalem for Jesus for the very, very last time. And as they're journeying forward, Jesus is taking the lead. And he is resolute, he is concrete in his movement towards Jerusalem. Nothing will stop Jesus from fulfilling the Father's work in his life. He is fully committed to doing everything the Father wants him to do and to serve the people around him, sacrificing himself to save a lost and a broken humanity. And the resolution of Jesus, the clarity, the strength that he is moving forward is creating ripples throughout the people who are following him. As his disciples look at Jesus, they are astonished, astonished at his strength, at his commitment, at his deep desire to do the Father's will, and some of the others are even profoundly afraid, because they're not sure how all of this is going to play out. And everyone realizes that this is moving towards a powerful kind of climax. And Jesus recognizes that his followers are still thinking in an old model. They're still expecting Jesus to come through in power and in strength and in might and raise up an army or call down an army of heaven and cast the Romans out and bring in a physical kingdom. And Jesus doesn't want them to be misled. And so Jesus takes them aside and explains to them what is about to happen to him all over again. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, 
who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Again, Jesus couldn't really be more clear. In this passage, Jesus is saying, this is exactly what will happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mistreated in all kinds of ways, and they will kill me. Three days later, I will rise again. I recognized last week we had a really powerful opportunity to celebrate that this is exactly what happened. And Jesus is explaining this to his disciples because he knows they still expect something profoundly different, even though he's told them this a couple of times before. He's saying to them, I want you to recognize this. I want you to be prepared for this. I want you to understand this. And he also wants them to recognize that the kingdom of God is going to be different than they think it's going to be. Things will not play out in exactly the way that they are anticipating or intending. The kingdom of God is a place that is devoid of self-centeredness, that is free of all kinds of arrogance. And Jesus wants them to understand the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing in, not through might and strength and power, but through a deep work of the Spirit of God by surrendering himself in an act of humility and service, the kingdom of God will come. And the last time Jesus talked to his disciples about this, we remember that they broke out into this wild argument about which one of them was going to be the greatest and the most important. So let's see what happens this time. Jesus has just said this. We read, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is a pretty bold statement. Jesus I'm not going to tell you what it is, but we just want you to promise you will do whatever we ask you to do, okay? Just like anything. Anything we want, you'll just give it to us right here and right now. And Jesus wisely replies, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on your left when you come into your glory. They're saying, Jesus, we don't really want much. We just want to be the most important people. We want to be elevated above everybody else. We want to be seen to be more significant, more influential, more powerful, more dignified, more amazing than anybody else who's following you. We don't want much. We just want all of this, and we want it for us, and we want you to do this because we know you're coming to bring your kingdom in. So make us these kinds of people. And this is a really bold and a really self-centered and a really arrogant ask. This is not James and John's greatest moment. This is not one of their all-star spaces where they're just like shining in goodness. This is a really bad, bad moment. And Matthew's gospel will actually tell us that they actually included their mom in this ask. Like, we're not really sure if Jesus will give us this. So mom, can you come and ask with us? Because we think Jesus can say yes to you differently than he will say yes to us. Can you imagine the intensity of this moment and this situation? Jesus is just saying to them, I will give of myself. I will be humiliated and degraded and pulled down and murdered on your behalf. And they say, Jesus, make us the best. Jesus, make us the greatest. We need to be more important and more significant and more valuable than all the rest of these 10 guys over here. We need to be seen to be great and powerful and influential. It's interesting when you see their hearts. They're just convinced that this is right. They're convinced that they are more deserving, that they are more important, that they are more significant, that they are more valuable than all of the rest of Jesus' followers. And so they say, Jesus, make us the most important. I wonder if in their mind they're thinking, because can you imagine if Peter and Andrew end up being the most important? This would be a disaster for all of us. And so James and John say, we need to be there. We need to be the most significant people. And has this ever happened to you? I know it's happened to me. 
Will you catch yourself in that moment where you are just convinced that you are more significant, you are more valuable, you are more important, you are more deserving than anybody else around you? That who you are and who you need to be is just so central to everything that is taking place that you must be lifted up, you must be placed in the most significant and important spot because you just deserve it. Obviously, look at everybody else around you. What would happen if God chose to use those people? This would be a disaster. I'm sometimes frightened by how easily this can happen. I'm frightened by how subtle this temptation is. This gentle temptation to just think that I am more significant or more important or more deserving than the people around me. It just slides in so easily. And a part of why this slides into our souls so easily is that we live in a culture where this just saturates the air where we are told constantly that we are the most important, that we are the most deserving, that we are the most significant, and that everybody else should bend to our will and our desires. And we hear these messages so often that sometimes we even begin to repeat them, and we begin to believe these lies that we are the most essential person, and that all of life is really meant to be about us and about our fulfillment and our accomplishments and the things that we desire. But this leaves us profoundly dissatisfied because this is not the way that life works. But our souls have been convinced that we are central to everything and that our lives are about us and about our fulfillment and we are the most deserving and the most important person in the room at any particular moment in time. And so as we go through life, we are constantly frustrated. We are frustrated that everybody else around us doesn't recognize the fact that we are just this important. We are hurt and we are wounded by the fact that people won't just give us everything that we want. We are angry with God when situations don't work out the way that we want them to be because we are convinced that this life is all about our own fulfillment. And the hard task is that everybody else sitting around us also believes the very same thing. And so they are also bent on trying to make the world move towards their own will, to acknowledge their superiority, to acknowledge their deep desires and their um, sense of being the one who should have everything come to them the way that they want it to be. And so this leaves us in a constant place of tension, where most of the time we feel this deep sense of dissatisfaction because the world is not bending to our will. And even in the small glimpses that we get of everything going the way that we want it to be, there's something still missing because we know that it will shatter in a moment because everybody else around us is also trying to pull the world in their own way. And it leaves us in a profoundly dangerous place because we all are convinced that everything should be about us. And we feel profoundly justified in saying or doing anything to make things feel the way that we want them to be even mistreating and misusing and speaking badly about the people around us because we are so justified in the fact that life should be about us and about all of our fulfillment because we are deserving of it. It should take place this way. And so when James and John come to Jesus and say, you need to make us the most important, they're echoing so much the deep cry of all of our hearts. We want to be the most important. We want Jesus to elevate us and to recognize us and dignify us and make us like this. And I love how Jesus responds to them. Jesus responds with so much grace and so much truth. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. 
Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And so Jesus starts off with his disciples just bringing this healthy sense of clarity. He expresses to them, you don't have any idea what you're asking for. You don't understand that the way that I'm going into my glory is going to be through pain and crucifixion and death. You don't understand what you're asking. And when he talks about this idea of the cup and of his baptism, he's bringing together a beautiful combination of images. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the cup of God, it's usually talking about this idea of God's wrath being poured into a cup and handed to a nation in a way that will destroy that particular nation. It's this concept that God has a righteous kind of anger towards all of the evil in the world. And you and I catch a glimpse of this when we see horrendous things happening. When we hear about the damage that's done in the world, all of the injustice, we have this welling up within us that someone needs to make this right. And this is a sense of kind of righteous anger or wrath. And you can imagine all that God has when he sees and knows everything and understands all of the injustice of the world. And Jesus is saying that he is about to take the cup that is full of all of the wrath of God, extended towards all of humanity for all of its evil and all of its sin and all of its brokenness, and he will take this cup and drink it down to the very bottom, consuming all of the wrath of God against every sin that has ever been or ever will be committed against God and against one another. Jesus will take all of the wrath of God on himself by taking this cup. And in his baptism, he identified with a sinful humanity. And he is saying, I will identify fully with you so that my sacrifice can spread to every one of you and you have the opportunity to be saved. And Jesus says to James and John, who are saying, we want to be the most important. He says, can you do this? Can you consume all of the wrath of God against all sin for all time? And can you spread salvation to all humanity everywhere? And obviously the answer is no. Obviously, this is a rhetorical question. These guys can't do this. Only Jesus can do it. But they answer a bold and a clear, we can. They just don't understand. They don't have a clear sense of what's going on here. They are so misguided by their sense of being central to all things and their own arrogance that they believe that they could do whatever Jesus would call them to do, that they could take his cup from him, that they could do all of these things. And so Jesus, in a profound moment of grace, responds to this very arrogant, we can. And Jesus doesn't respond by shaming them. He doesn't respond by criticizing them. He doesn't respond by just dragging the evil out of their souls. But he responds to them graciously and reminds them that even though they want this place at his right and at his left, they aren't his to give. Because Jesus will always act in full submission to the Father and the Father's already chosen who's going to be in those places. And then Jesus says something really interesting. He reminds them that someday they will walk the path that he's walking, and they won't carry the weight of God's wrath, and they won't save humanity from all of its sin, but one day they will follow Jesus' example. One day they will sacrifice their lives. One day they too will suffer, and they will die for him and for his commitment and for the people around them. You see, history will tell us that John is the only one of Jesus' disciples who died a natural death. All of the rest of them were killed for their faith, and John was tortured for his. And Jesus is saying to them, even though you are arrogant now, 
even though you are self-centered now, even though right now all that you can think about is your own position and your own power and your own control, someday you will change. Someday you will grow. Someday you will come to the place where you will willingly lay down every single part of your life for me and for the people around you. Your souls will be so devoted to me that you will stop at nothing for the cause of the gospel. And Jesus is expressing a profound and a powerful trust in these two yahoos and saying to them, someday you will be like this. Because as the Spirit of God moves in you and through you, as you devote yourselves more and more to the presence of Christ in you, you will change. And you will become like me, is what Jesus is saying to them. And I love that God can do this. God can see them and he can see us in the midst of our brokenness and our arrogance and our self-centeredness and he can see who we can become. He's not blind to the damage or the evils within our souls in the present moment, but he recognizes that through the power of his indwelling presence within us, as we submit ourselves to him more and more, he can shape us and change us. To be the kind of people who would willingly lay down all the fullness of who we are for his glory and in service to the people around us, we, our souls can be shaped to look like Jesus. It's an amazing gift of grace. But before we get too far into all of this, we have to get back to this encounter. So James and John come to Jesus, they have this conversation, and then the inevitable happens. The rest of the ten hear that James and John have had this conversation, and we read, when they heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They are furious with the two of them. And can you imagine, how would you feel if James and John go to Jesus and say, we want to be superior and more important than anybody else? But even in the response of the ten, they show that they maybe have a similar damage within their own souls. They are angry because James and John were trying to be superior to them when obviously they felt like they should have been the most important and most superior people as well. They may be also a little bit afraid because what if this had worked? What if Jesus had chosen these two guys and elevated them to this place when they went behind his back? And so they are indignant with them because they're angry because they also want to be the most important people. And maybe it's a really good test of our humility. How do we respond when someone else is elevated? How do we respond when somebody else is chosen? How do we respond when we feel overlooked? How do we respond in those conversations where somebody else just dominates the whole thing, thinking that what they have to say is so much more interesting than what we might want to say? It's a really good test of where our hearts are at. It challenges us with this question, are we also just trying to be better or more significant or more important? Does this grate on us because our hearts are in a very similar kind of a place? And so Jesus seizes this moment because he has to do something about it. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus won't miss this moment. And he draws them all together and he says to them, you guys recognize what it's like to be an oppressed people. They lived every single day under the power of Gentile rulers who were simply exploiting all of the people for their own advantage. And Jesus says, you know what this feels like 
to have someone else use you for their own advantage. You know what it feels like to be pushed down and pushed aside for someone who doesn't care anything about you. So this is not how it will be in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we will value greatness very, very differently. It's interesting to consider that the revolution that Jesus is bringing about is profoundly different than any other revolution that has ever taken place in human history. When you look at the revolutions that we see in our own history, these things take place with one oppressive group of people being subjugated and pushed down by another group of people who end up oppressing everybody else as well. You think about the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution, this is exactly what happens. One group of people gets yanked and pulled down only to be replaced by another group of people who are also oppressive and self-centered and arrogant and self-focused. It's just a swap of one kind of oppression for another. And Jesus is saying, this is not what I'm about and this is not what I am doing. In the kingdom of God, greatness comes to those who serve, to those who are willing to be the slave of everybody else. Greatness comes by offering ourselves up for the betterment of somebody else. Because what's the job of a slave and what's the job of a servant? To make someone else's life comfortable, to make someone else's life great, to make sure that someone else has everything that they might need and everything that they may want. And Jesus is saying this is the great reversal that he's bringing about. That if our lives are going to be shaped by the beauty and the wonder of the kingdom of God, we will willingly give ourselves up to serve those around us for their comfort and their betterment, for their enjoyment, for their fulfillment, because this is the revolution that Jesus is bringing. This is the transformation that he is all about. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he himself is not doing. He is the only one who should be exalted. He is the only one who should be lifted up. He is the only one who is worthy of worship. And he is saying, I am here to serve. I'm here to fulfill the will of the Father, and I'm here to give my life for a broken and a lost humanity that is actively in rebellion against me. And I will give myself up for them. And Jesus is saying to his disciples and to everyone who will follow him, this is what greatness looks like. This is what the kingdom of God is about. This is a space free of self-centeredness and free of arrogance. This is a place, this is a place characterized by a life-giving humility and by service. A constant devotion to the betterment and the glory of the Father and the goodness of the people around us. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And if we're going to embrace this, it requires a significant change of heart because we can't just change our behavior, it would never be enough. You see, very, way back at the very beginning when humanity first gave into temptation, this was our temptation. The serpent said to Eve, God is holding out on you. You know better than God. Reach out and take the fruit for yourself. Elevate yourself. Become like God. Don't consider what he might want. Don't consider what will happen to Adam. Don't consider what will happen to all of creation. Think about what do you want. What is in your best interest? And make yourself like God. And ever since we have wrestled with this constant pull, this constant nagging within our soul that everything needs to be about us and that the universe should swirl around us, that we should be like God. But to come back to sanity and to come back to peace, we have to acknowledge that we are not God, that the universe does not swirl around us, that life is not created simply for our enjoyment and our fulfillment, but that God himself is at the center of all things that our lives function best as we, like Jesus, fully submit ourselves into his hands 
and are willing to do whatever the will of the Father may be in our lives and in our existence. And as, like Jesus, we choose to serve the people around us, that they will be fulfilled and satisfied and made whole. This is how life works best. But to do this, we need to acknowledge once again that we are not God. And to allow him to rule and reign over all of our life and over all of our experience, to choose to align ourselves with him. And then we have to act this out. And like if you're changing your golf swing, it takes a lot of practice because the old habits are really deeply ingrained. It takes a lot of practice for us to live this out faithfully because the patterns of selfishness and arrogance and personal ambition are so deeply ingrained in our souls that we need to keep walking this out. And we can do this in a thousand different ways, but I just want to look at a couple this morning. Again, for example, what would it look like if our conversations were shaped by the fact that we are not God, but that we are deeply loved by Him, and that He empowers us to love and to bless and to serve the people around us? What would your conversations look like if you didn't need to convince the other person that you were smarter or better or more valuable or more significant or more deserving or more interesting? I think we would listen better. I think we would feel freedom to tell people what is in their best interest and not what is in our own best interest. I think we could engage with people in a healthier way. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, we should speak what will be for the benefit of the other person. I think it would change our mode of discourse. And can you imagine what would happen if even just for the next week, if you and I chose to, with every conversation to say, how do I go into this conversation to serve and not to be served? How do I go into this conversation to speak what will benefit this person and not what's for my own benefit? How would I go into this conversation to delight the Father and to glorify Him and to honor His will for my life today? I think it would change a lot of things. What about our choices? How many of our choices are based on the fact that we are trying to somehow be like God or be better or be superior? Maybe what we wear or what we drive or where we live or our day-to-day choices, what we do and don't do, are being motivated and pushed by this deep desire to prove our betterment or our superiority or how very deserving we are. And what if every day this week, with every choice that was presented to us, we just asked the question, am I trying to look good or am I trying to do good? Am I trying to be served or am I trying to serve? What do you think would shift in your perspective this week if it wasn't about trying to meet the deep needs of your soul, but what if our choices were just based on the fact that we want to deeply honor and glorify our Father and submit utterly to His will? We want to serve the needs of the people that God has placed right beside us to love them and to dignify them, to bless them, and to build them up and to care for them. I think if we tried it for a week, we might do it for longer. I think if we tried it for a week, we would see significant changes. We would see a deeper level of peace within our own souls. We would see healthier dynamics in all of our relationships. We would make better decisions. We would honor the Father more faithfully. And again, Jesus is the master teacher. He instructs us and he guides us and he uses this process of repetition to teach us what is real and right so that we can learn this in a healthy and in an ongoing way. And the interesting thing today is that change really is possible. John, who was one of these yahoos going up to Jesus and saying, I want to be the most important person. As a young man, he said this, but as an old man, when John is writing to the church, he writes this, he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives 
for each other. You see, everything that Jesus said about John was true, and it was accurate. As John submitted his life to the presence of God and allowed the Spirit of God to move and to work in him, God changed him from a self-centered and an arrogant young man into an old man who was instructing and guiding and leading other people in surrendering their lives because Jesus had modeled this. John had given the fullness of his life to honoring the Father and to serving the people around him, and he did this all the way through to the very end. And if God can do this in the life of John, God can do this in my life, and God can do this in your life. And he's inviting us and guiding us to be people who surrender ourselves to him, who choose to honor him and delight in him. And as we submit ourselves to him, the Spirit of God can bring about this kind of change in our souls. He can move us from people who are just so naturally self-centered and arrogant to people who serve with humility, fully submitted to the will of the Father, and can recognize and delight in the fact that we can serve those around us and seek their betterment and their fulfillment. This is a beautiful movement of God. But this change always begins, as every change begins, when we agree with God. When we acknowledge before him, Lord, I can confess that I am self-centered and I am arrogant. I can confess that what I'm trying to do is make myself be great. Would you change my soul so that I long to see you lifted up and the people around me served well? I want us to just take an honest moment with God. And just ask him, Lord, what is on your heart for me today? What needs to change for me? Where do you want me to start? To move from self-centeredness and arrogance into humility and a beautiful kind of service. Let's just take an honest moment with God and just ask him, Lord, what do you want to do? What's the action that you're inviting me into this week to bring about this change? And Lord, we just want to start off by agreeing with you. And so, Jesus, we renounce the lie that life is all about us. And we freely confess the truth that you are Lord and God and life is all about you. Would you shift our hearts and our souls and our minds? Would you draw us deeper into your presence and empower us to walk faithfully with you? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit in such a way that we are changed to look like you? That our natural response would be to seek the glory of the Father and the betterment of the people around us. Would you empower us to live this kind of a life of service? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.